I'm not one who pats myself on the back, but I'll tell you what, this podcast is so perfectly titled as it totally reflects how my brain works. I always fully intend to commence writing an episode with a particular topic in mind, and while doing research, I inevitably get sidetracked by the fascinating things I learn along the way and often get started on another episode before finishing the first. So in one sense or another, I have this entire season mapped out and all but three episodes are only partially finished, which always leaves me terribly behind schedule with an excess of unused curiosities that need to be cut for time. So, as in season one, I decided to make haste instead of waste by rescuing a handful of trivia from the abyss of my recycling bin. This is The Curiosity Scatter, Volume 2. Every spring when I was in high school, there would be a dance called Turnabout, where the girls would ask the guys to the gala, a concept I loved as it spared me the insufferable anxiety of being rejected by some girl I liked with the invitation to join me for an evening of cutting rugs, which I am terrible at. Consequently, I was never asked to a turnabout during those decisive years of my life. Don't worry, I'm fine. Since graduating years ago, the subject of this event has come up in conversations that I've had with people about their high school experiences, and almost every single one of them in my age group has had similar celebrations at their schools, except theirs was called a Sadie Hawkins dance. And I never, until hosting this show, bothered to question who this Sadie Hawkins was and why this tradition was named for her. Was she a dancer? Did she go to an all-girls school looking for a function in which to involve boys? Was she even real? The answer to all three of these questions is a big, fat no. It turns out she is a fictional character from Al Cap's 44-year-long comic strip, Lil Abner. Sadie Hawkins was the daughter of Hexebia Hawkins and was considered the, quote, homeliest gal in all them hills, end quote, of the fictional town of Dogpatch where they resided. Sadie Hawkins remained a single lady through the age of 35 when Hexebia called upon all the unmarried men in Dogpatch to attend Sadie Hawkins Day, wherein Sadie would chase the men in a race with their bachelorhood, and whomever she caught would be betrothed to her. Sadie had her eyes fixed on this guy named Adam, but... He was determined to marry another damsel in town, 
which infused Adam with the adrenaline to escape Sadie's grasp, resigning the girl to instead settle on her seizure of John Johnston. The success of this inaugural event did not go unnoticed by the other single ladies of Dogpatch, who liked the idea and petitioned to make it a mandatory annual event. The concept debuted in the November 15th 1937 printing of the Lil Abner comic strip and the storyline was stretched through the end of the month. It was not Al Cap's intention to invent a national craze, yet two years later, Life magazine did a story about colleges who held Sadie Hawkins Day celebrations, making it a sensation in real life as well. Officially, Sadie Hawkins Day falls on the first Saturday after November 9th, though the Old Farmer's Almanac asserts the day to be on November 15th regardless of the day of the week. Eager to please his fans, Al Cap made Sadie Hawkins Day an annual tradition in the comic strip as well. Scatter curiosity... Leap Year was once a real-life calendar event in history transpiring every four years where women would propose to men who jumped on the bandwagon with the tradition. And speaking of jumping on the bandwagon, where the heck did that saying come from? And what does it really mean? From the sources I found, a bandwagon is how Phineas T. Barnum and his circus would travel from town to town. Prior to the days of the internet, posters and word of mouth were the best means of advertising events. When folks saw a bandwagon approaching their town, the locality would be abuzz with excitation. And even back in those days, politicians would try to sponge off of pop culture and cash in on trends. So at the end of the 19th century, they too jumped on bandwagons, showcasing their traveling campaign circuses. The phrase emerged from the century, meaning to show support for a politician, and then eventually support for anything, the antithesis of 86ing them. You've heard that one before, right? To 86 something or to be 86th? Well, if not, it is a slang word for refusing service to somebody or getting rid of something that is greatly used in the food industry for an item that is no longer on the menu. Webster's Dictionary suggests that it might have had something to do with the word nicks following a long tradition of diner slang that became known to the nation in the 1930s. For example, butter is called axle grease or cow paste. Coffee is belly warmer. Tea is boiled leaves. A bow wow is a hot dog. Garlic is referred to as Bronx vanilla or Italian perfume. Bullets are beans. City juice is water. Eve with a lid is apple pie. Dead eye is a poached egg. K 
Carrots are called Irish cherries. A life preserver is a donut. Lumber, a toothpick. Looseners are prunes. Moo juice is milk. Rabbit food is lettuce. Sand is sugar. And the wet mystery is beef stew. And like so much of the slang that finds its way into our modern lexicon, there are differing theories as to the origin of 86ing something, starting with the U.S. Navy's AT, or Allowance Type, Codex, which was an abbreviated single-digit code that identified military stock material. And isn't it funny that abbreviated is such a long word? Anyway, the code AT-6 was assigned to components that were to be thrown away. After World War II, a ton of out-of-date equipment needed to be gotten rid of and put into storage, or mothballed. Workers and administrators of the storerooms and parts being designated to their final destinations would look for their AT codes where the procedure was to dispose of anything that had been AT-6'd. A second theory, and the one I have always heard, is that 86'd originated with Chumley's Bar located at 86 Bedford Street in the West Village of Lower Manhattan. During the Prohibition era in the United States, crooked or bought policemen would call the bartender at Chumley's prior to a raid and advised him to 86 the patrons, which meant that everyone should exit out the 86 Bedford Street door while the cops storm through the Pamela Court entrance, a scenario that is played out in the 2006 novel Funhouse, when the author Alison Bechtel talks about getting 86 from Chumley's Bar. Scattered curiosity, John Barrymore brother of Academy Award winners Ethel and Lionel Barrymore and grandfather to Drew Barrymore was an actor of the stage, silent films and talkies that starred in classics like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, who is lauded as perhaps the greatest Hamlet ever to grace the stage in a production that cut more than 1,250 lines from the masterpiece and ran 101 performances, breaking Edwin Booth's record, yes, John Wilkes's brother, of 100 performances in the role of the Great Dane? was also a notorious philandering drunk. And the greatest living American tragedian frequented a bar at the Belasco Building in New York City with his drinking buddy, W.C. Fields, that used the code 86 to refer to the scene-chewing ham, signaling bartenders not to serve him. John also had the nickname The Great Profile as most of his movie posters highlight his left side. According to him, quote, the right side of my face looks like a fried egg, end quote. Perhaps his egg face is the missing link of 86's connection to Greasy Spoon Diners.
In fact, 86ing can be found in many genres of the entertainment industry. The lead character in Gore Vidal's Visit to a Small Planet instructs his subordinates to 86 or destroy things throughout the play. In the incredulously ridiculous Mel Brooks television series Get Smart, Agent 86 was Maxwell Smart's codename, while his competent female partner was named 99. Originally written as 100, as in 100%, but Buck Henry thought that 99 sounded more feminine. 86 on the Cherry Pies is a lyric used in the 1947 song Boogie Woogie Blue Plate. Jimmy Buffett's 1976 song Clichés has a lyric, She's 86th from the Chart Room. And music, specifically jazz, has given us some other slang words that our predominantly non-jazz-loving society still uses to this very day starting with the name itself, which came down to us in 1915, meaning excitement and nonsense. The word cool, in the sense that Fonzie would use it rather than a description of temperature, was made popular by the jazz saxophonist Lester Young. Jazz is also where we get the phrase, see you later, alligator. The audience at swing performances were known as the Alligators, while the musicians were called Hepcats. Bill Haley and the Comet song of the same name made the saying, See you later, Alligator, common household slang. And while most people associate the word groovy with the hippie counterculture of the 1960s, it is actually a borrowed term from their parents' generation in the 1930s. When a jazz combo is really feeling the music, they are said to be playing in the groove, like the groove of a record. And while we're still talking about entertainment, have you ever wondered why people say an actor is in a movie but on TV? Well, the answer is pretty logical, really. When performing a play, a thespian acts on stage. Television is nearer in format to a stage play, so much so that even the script is referred to as a teleplay. The parallel is especially relevant with sitcoms that are filmed in front of a live studio audience. It is the same reason we say on the radio versus in the radio. Radio plays dominated entertainment in the golden days before movies and the need to have radio-faced performers get all decked out for their close-ups. And the phrase decked out comes from the Dutch word decken, meaning to cover, decorate, or adorn with something. Being that the Dutch brought the mythos of Sinterklaas to the Americas, it is not surprising we also deck in the halls like the Dutch do too. And if you haven't figured it out by now, I totally geek out when talking about the Netherlands as evidenced by the very first episode of Scattered Curiosities, Let's Go Dutch. 
but let me be clear. I do not consider myself a geek. I'm probably more accurately described as a nerd, except when I'm dancing. Then I am a dork. The word geek has been cultivated somewhat over the years. In 1876 England, it meant a fool. A few years later, it would be used to describe a sideshow performer who would bite the heads off chickens in a Coney Island-esque geek show. Starting in the late 1950s, geek traded its foolish qualities to enlightened ones and came to mean a non-social, very serious student. Here in the 21st century, a geek is not only an expert in science or computers who are part of a big box squad of some kind, it is overtly used for mere enthusiasts of anything, really. Many people who I would not classify as geeks proudly boast the qualifying title, asserting things like, I'm a total Food Network geek, which I am, but again, I self-identify as a nerd, despite the fact that I'm more technologically advanced than smart, the cardinal quality of a nerd. I guess I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place on this one. Another saying from the 1920s, that refers to the banker's panic of 1907 that was covered in detail in episode 3.1 of Scattered Curiosities, Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians Part 2, where miners had a choice between low-wage pay working in a dangerous coal mine, the rock, or being unemployed, a hard place, a situation forced upon them by the filthy rich. One more term that surfaced during the Great Depression when swindlers would make money preying on poor, desperate people. And the way that they got rich was considered to be filthy by the common working man. P.U. By the way, P.U. is not spelled or pronounced as the two letters P and you, which as a kid, I thought stood for poop and urine. It is instead an abbreviation of the Latin word puteo, which means to smell bad. In Indo-European cultures, it meant to rot or decay and made its spelling P-I-U, pronounced P-U. And here are some other silly thoughts and questions that were originally generated for my Bobby Fulton interview from last season, but did not make the cut. Like, is it considered insulting if I put my two cents in when advising a person, but only give them a penny for their thoughts when they reciprocate? Or am I being ripped off because I must pay two cents while they get paid one for their opinions? How come bra is singular and panties is plural? Isn't W really a double V? Why do they ask you to fill out a form when you are greatly spending time filling it in? 
Have you ever noticed that quicksand is slow? Why is a piano player a pianist, but a race car driver is not called a racist? And isn't it funny that slim chance and fat chance mean the same thing, while wise guys and wise men mean two completely different things? I have been called both in my day, the latter when I was recently able to answer this question during a real-life conversation. In libraries, do they put the Bible in the fiction or the non-fiction section? I put boots on the ground and went to the New York Public Library to find the answer. And the Bible is cataloged as non-fiction alongside poetry, comedy, and philosophy books. I imagine this is to appease those who would be insulted if their beliefs were fictionalized, a PR nightmare. I guess it stands to reason because when the Bible was written, the authors believed it to be true. However, movie scripts that are based on real-life events still go into the fiction section. And I know that the Dewey Decimal System has long been in use and would be an ultimate pain in the neck to reclassify, but I would argue that all holy books of all religions should be put in a section of the library called religion or faith, much like a bookstore would. And while I am not a deeply religious person myself, I find the institution of religion to be compelling and some of the stories behind the Holy Bible's cast of characters are centric themes that have been reimagined throughout the ages. And there is so much more to the book than just Adam, Eve, the snake, Noah, the Virgin Mary, and Jesus. In my recent thumbing through the good book, I came across three intriguing figures that I did not remember from Sunday school and am surprised do not have movies that explore their allegories. The first would be Jethro, Moses' father-in-law who gave the liberating leaders sage advice as to how to manage being the acting figurehead to millions of Israelites which was proving to be a daunting task. Everyone with a problem was bringing it to Moses personally. In the book of Exodus, Jethro advises Moses to split his work into tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands to dole out the many responsibilities to the qualified Israeli for the job. You know, share the burden. Moses was happy not to have to micromanage everything. Elishama is a scribe who is barely mentioned in the Bible at all, but can be found in the pages of Jeremiah. And Elishama is engaging because there is hard evidence of his real-life existence, giving credibility to Scripture. In 1986, a clay artifact with writing that says, quote, Ilishama, servant of the king, end quote, was found in Jerusalem and was conclusively determined to be from the correct era and locality of his place in the Bible. 
and I am surprised that I did not know anything about King Og, who is lightly mentioned over two dozen times in the Bible, but only once with the tiniest bit of detail in Deuteronomy, which reveals that King Og was the last of the giants, measuring four feet taller than the most famous giant in the Bible, Goliath, the beast from the east. Which reminds me of another poser I learned about prepping this season. How far east can you go before you are heading west? The answer can be found with the prime meridian, the imaginary line dividing the east and west hemispheres, commonly recognized as Greenwich, England. And while the prime meridian has changed position over the courses of history to suit different countries' needs, Greenwich is generally agreed upon by most of the world as where East begins. West begins with the 180th meridian that goes through Amatic Alaska. And finally, I considered cutting some residual facts that came up in this episode as well when I was finding sources for being 86th. Of course, the first thing that Google's auto-populate function assumed that I was asking about was the year 1986, and I couldn't resist sharing a few landmark facts from my eighth year on this planet, which was deemed to be the International Year of Peace by the United Nations, which saw two major world tragedies. The Challenger space shuttle exploded one minute and 13 seconds after its launch, killing a civilian school teacher and six other astronauts. In addition to the explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear facility in the former Soviet Union. The USSR would be successful, however, in launching the Mir space station into orbit the largest ever constructed at the time. Halley's Comet made a once every 75 years pass by the sun and earth. Mike Tyson became the youngest heavyweight champion, making me question why it's called a boxing rink when it's square, or why rink at all and not ring, which is round. The Mets beat the Red Sox in Game 7 of the World Series. The Chicago Bears won the Super Bowl in 1986. Also out of Chicago, the Oprah Winfrey Show made its national debut after being a successful local Windy City show. And across the pond in jolly old England, the first known case of mad cow disease was reported. Phantom of the Opera, the longest-running Broadway show ever, opened in London. And... The 335 years' war between the United Kingdom's Isles of Scilly and the Netherlands ended by treaty. And here in the States, hands across America saw 5 million people make a human chain between Long Beach, California and New York City to raise money for the homeless. Smoking was banned on all public transportation, such as planes, trains, and buses. 
and the birth of the first federal Martin Luther King Jr. Day was observed. Also born in 1986, Lindsay Lohan, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olson, Amanda Bynes, Emily Van Camp, Revenge, Shia LaBeouf, Robert Pattinson, Lady Gaga, or Stephanie Germanata for you purists, Lee Dwise, Lena Dunham, Megan Fox, Solange Knowles, Drake Bell, and Leah Michelle. Rock Me Amadeus by Falco was the number one song of the year, sharing the airwaves with other popular songs of the day, like That's What Friends Are For by Dionne Warwick and Friends, Say You, Say Me, Lionel Richie, Broken Wings and Kyrie from Mr. Mister, Addicted to Love, Robert Palmer, Danger Zone, Kenny Loggins, Stuck With You, Huey Lewis in the News, Sarah by Starship, Venus, Bananarama, When the Going Gets Tough, Billy Ocean, Burning Heart, Survivor, Heartbeat, Don Johnson, and The Future So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades by Tim Buck Three. Music would also be forever changed when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced its first inductees in 1986, which included Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ray Charles, the Everly Brothers, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Sam Cooke, and James Brown, who never seemed able to make up his mind as he was always telling me to get on up through the duration of a given song and then completely flip-flop on the next track demanding that I get down. The homoerotic action film Top Gun was number one at the box office, alongside other popular films of 1986, like Platoon, Crocodile Dundee, The Golden Child, Stand By Me, Aliens, two Bette Midler films, Ruthless People and Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Cobra, An American Tale, Peggy Sue Got Married, Short Circuit, Pretty in Pink, The Three Amigos, Back to School, The Money Pit, The Color of Money, Little Shop of Horrors, The Musical, Running Scared, Labyrinth, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, The Karate Kid Part Two, Jumpin' Jack Flash, Hoosiers, Flight of the Navigator, and another Chicago classic, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And also in 1986, two of my favorite television programs debuted, ALF and Pee-wee's Playhouse, the latter of which we will get a bit more familiar with in our next full-length episode of Scattered Curiosities, Rubes, Rubies, Rubies, and Rubens. If you'd like
like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.